Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I will be your co-host today. First off, like we always do, I want to say thank you to everybody that is uh, supporting us, checking out the show. Um, also wanted to shout out our social medias. We are at beyond underscore breakers on Twitter. We are Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram. Email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Uh, money from the Patreon just goes towards making the show better. And uh, we'll always be ad-free. We'd much rather have you guys support us that way if you choose to. Uh, with that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and introduce Tanner. And Tanner actually has a really special episode for us this week. A very special episode of Beyond the Breakers. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Had kind of a weird week break as I was doing moving stuff and other stuff going on in life, but we are back and we're better than ever. I'm excited for this. Yeah, for sure. It's nice to be back doing it. All right. So as Taylor mentioned, we have a episode today where we're kind of going a little bit out of our wheelhouse, specifically out of the North American slash English speaking world, uh, as we as we tend to do so often on this show. Today, we are going to South America, specifically to Chile, to discuss the sinking of the transport ship Angamos. Yeah, it's nice to go somewhere different. And it's the one continent where we do not have a download yet. So we're going to get it. You guys could get on that for this episode. That'd be wonderful. We're going to lock down the <laughs> South American shipwreck interest demographic. All right. So here we go. Angamos. Angamos was constructed in 1890 by the British company C.S. Swan and Hunter. Uh, she was originally purchased by the Italian Navy. Her mm-hmm. original name, Città di Venezia, the city of Venice. <laughs> she was later purchased very briefly, from what I could tell, by a Dutch company. Uh, she was renamed the Spartan. But then eventually, where she sort of enters into our story... Uh, She was purchased by the Chilean government of José Manuel Balmaceda for use in the Chilean Civil War of 1891. It was a relatively short conflict, so the ship actually arrived to Chile in 1892 after the conflict had already ended with President Balmaceda on the losing side. As an aside, that that, uh, Chilean Civil War of 1891, sometimes called the Revolution of 1891, is interesting uh, as civil wars go, in that the army sided with the president, while the navy sided with the opposite side with Congress. Uh, ultimately, it is strange that the uh, branches were split like that. Yeah, the way that it breaks down. And for anyone who's ever seen a map of Chile with as much coastline as makes up that country, obviously the navy is an important thing to have on your side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ultimately, the the Congressists uh, with the with the navy were victorious. That ship, when it did arrive, was renamed Angamos uh, in honor of a naval battle during the War of the Pacific between Chile and Peru. Uh, so then she sort of enters into a run of relatively routine usage. As a transport vessel, she did a lot of... She, she tended to carry uh, crews to the places where their, where their ships were being constructed. Uh, so in 1896, mm-hmm. she sails to England. Uh, she's carrying cr- uh, the crews for a couple of new cruisers and destroyers for the Chilean Navy. From 1908 to 1916, she's put to use as a collier, which I had to learn or maybe relearn what that was for this episode. Mm -hmm. I learned that a collier is a ship that specifically carries coal. 
Oh, that's yeah, yep. That is fun. Uh, in 1960, actually, just to 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 bring that back to a previous episode, that is the type of vessel that struck the Empress of Ireland. Ah, uh, I knew I had seen the word before. I was like, I don't exactly know what it is though. So mm-hmm. very we, always good. We can tie back to another episode. So in uh, 1916, she was re- refitted as a as a pure transport ship. She traveled to the actually to the United States to bring back the first ever fleet of Chilean submarines. In 1917, uh, she traveled uh, up here with the cruiser Chacabuco. Interestingly, on this trip, she was captained by Luis Pardo Villalon. Uh, This is the captain who rescued Shackleton's crew from Elephant Island. Huh, that's pretty cool. That was an interesting uh, connection to another story that people might know. Uh, So back onto her, her sort of routine voyages, she travels to Britain again in 1920, carrying more crews for more ships as the Chilean Navy is trying to build itself up, you know, as, as many South American countries are trying to do at this point. And that's, that's kind of the story of Angamos for, for quite some time here until we get to the focal year of our episode, 1928. Okay. Um, So specifically the summer of 1928. So in June, Angamos sails to Punta Arenas. Punta Arenas is in the very, very far south of Chile. It's it's almost as far south as you can go. Pretty far south. It is. It's very far south. For this trip, she's under the command of Ismael Suarez Maldonado. He is a very experienced captain. He had actually previously retired from the Navy to do some mm-hmm. other government work. Uh, and he was brought back into service to be the captain of Angamos. For this particular trip, the sources are somewhat conflicting as to what this exact trip was for. It's not really a huge detail, regardless of, of what this purpose of this trip is. It's nothing out of the ordinary. Either this was a pre-scheduled trip to carry naval personnel and their relatives from Punta Arenas back north, or it could have possibly been to transport workers who had been in Punta Arenas uh, returning north who couldn't pay for <laughs> passage on a you know civilian or merchant ship right it's it's really immaterial to what actually right, happens yeah. to the ship so angamos leaves punta arenas for puerto Montt with 295 people on board that's both crew and passengers this trip goes by totally smoothly um, no problems no issues they even notes there was great camaraderie among everyone with musical performances at night sounds like a good time it's kind of a festive atmosphere uh, on this ship here. So Angamos arrives in, uh, I almost rolled my R on arrive there, <laughs> <laughs> arrives in Puerto Montt uh, on June 25th at 3 p.m. Some passengers get off, some get on. This is pretty standard for what you see uh, in these transport ships at the time. They're basically just making constant runs up and down the coast, stopping at each of the major port cities. It's, mm-hmm. it's a totally normal thing that's going on here. So uh, Commander Suarez he asks for a weather forecast in Puerto Montt and waits a couple of days uh, until he is, is sure that the weather is going to improve because you can tell that it's it's probably going to be rough. Right. And on that note, this brings us to July 6th, 1928. So at nightfall on July 6th, while approaching Punta Morguilla, which is about nine miles south of Lebu, which is itself kind of close to Concepcion, uh, the ship suffered a serious malfunction with its rudder. The direct cause of this malfunction does not appear to be known. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a relatively old ship at this point. It's almost what thirty years old. This could have been a simple mechanical failure, you know, due to lack of maintenance or whatnot. Or 
in the stormy weather that it was experiencing, this could have been a, a bit of physical damage suffered from striking rocks. So yet again, we're in a situation where a vessel doesn't have steering and it's in bad weather, which seems to be a common theme for a lot of these stories. Yes, yes. Losing steering in bad weather, in the dark, and also, if you've ever seen the coast of Chile, it's very, very rocky. Uh, it's extremely rocky. Uh, and so that obviously will come up in, in a few minutes here. Uh, so at the time of leaving Puerto Montt, the vessel had 262 people on board. This is the official listed number on the ship. That's both sailors and passengers. Many of those passengers are women and children. Because as we said, with the military personnel traveling north, they were bringing their families with them. I'm assuming there's not like great records either. Like yeah, and that's that's one reason that it's a it's a bit difficult to parse some of the numbers on this because mm-hmm. people are sort of hopping on and off these ships at will, and not all of them are officially listed as passengers. Sometimes you have people who just uh, they need to travel, say from Punta Arenas to Valdivia, and they just know someone who's in the navy, so they just hop on their ship and travel with them. Obviously, that's not going to get recorded officially anywhere. Right. This is the official uh, listed number here. Uh, so back but to the... probably more. Yeah, quite possibly. Back to our ship here. So she has lost all of her ability to steer at this point. Uh, so now the radio man repeatedly sends out a distress call asking for urgent assistance, but the conditions don't really allow for clear reception of wireless signals. So some right. some things are being transmitted and received, but nothing is very clear and nothing is extremely helpful at this point. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the Edmela situation where they have to, you know, they get to that transmission station, but like the signals are weak and like, they don't really know what's going on. They send people to the wrong place and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this distress call does get picked up by another Chilean Navy ship, the Apollo, which transmits it on to the Naval base at Talcahuano. But again, there's, this is not super helpful at this point. So at this point, right. the ship is is trying to navigate through an extremely rocky area in absolute total darkness. With no steering. Yes, with no steering. So basically just being tossed around at this point. So obviously, Captain Suarez realizes the ship is really in trouble at this point. Being so close to the coast uh, at this point, the way that they're traveling, he puts out an order basically saying, anything we've got on board, horns, whistles, sirens, Anything that makes noise, get it and make noise. Let's just hope that someone on shore can hear this and possibly mm-hmm. help us out. So with the obviously probable failure of the, the radio transmission, he knows we've got to try anything we can do, uh, which I think is it's at least something. It's an attempt to uh, to help in the situation. Right, because it seems like they, they really don't have any options at this point. They're, they're just literally at the mercy of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So at about 8.30, the the ship is pushed onto the rocks, so big, big rocks. And then sometime later, obviously, we don't have great records of when exactly this happened. Sources kind of agree that it was possibly an hour or two. As it's up on these rocks, a massive wave comes and strikes the ship and essentially just breaks it in half. Okay. Um, And actually sort of just carries away the bridge. And so obviously a good chunk of the officers and the higher ranking people are sort of immediately gone. So now uh, it becomes 
pretty obvious that the ship is doomed because it's not even really a ship anymore. It, it's two halves of a ship. Right. This really, yeah, this really reminds me of the Edmela a lot, the way that it's, you know, kind of stuck up on a rock and, and being torn apart. Yeah, for sure. That's the whole time I was researching this, I was thinking, oh, Edmela, Edmela, Edmela. Uh, so at this point, as we've seen in, in previous episodes, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, passengers start jumping into the water. Sometimes that's the right move and sometimes it isn't. So at this point, obviously, they know they're very close to the coast, even though it is entirely dark. Uh, likely, you know, all desperation aside, the coast probably seems pretty reachable at this point. Right. But again, you know, being in the water, in the dark, these big waves, big rocks, always extremely dangerous. Most of these passengers mm-hmm. in the water are either drowned or thrown onto the rocks and don't survive. Even those that do make it to lifeboats are not safe in these conditions. The ones that could be deployed and filled with passengers, again, thrown onto the rocks and people don't survive from those. Right. Yeah. So that is essentially the story of the wreck portion of this. What I'm interested in is like the accounts. Like it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information about the wreck actually happening, but I guess you have to figure out of the survivors, most of them probably didn't know what was going on and couldn't give you any kind of detail as to what happened to the ship actually. And then like it's not like they're keeping track of time. Like you're you're just trying to survive. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because later uh, we actually do have some sort of secondhand accounts of what the crew was doing during all mm-hmm. of this. So yeah, actually, that, that's going to come up kind of in our next section. So that's essentially the wreck. The, the wreck itself, there's not a ton of details, and it happens relatively quickly uh, and suddenly. As far as the... I guess we'll get into it with like what happens next, but does this story play out in as long of time as like the Edmela, or is this kind of wrap up because the Edmela takes place over really the course of a week. This is people clinging to the ship and stuff. Like this that. is much, much faster. All of this starts and ends in a matter of about three hours. Okay. Um, between when it loses steering and when everything is, is basically hopeless. Um, and, and so this gone. is a little bit less of a, long-term survival things like yes. the ML, you have people dying of thirst and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Not, none of that here. So the, the wreck itself obviously is a story. Another big part of this story though, is the search and rescue effort that goes on next. Mm-hmm. So kind of jumping back a little bit, we talked about how the conditions weren't really conducive to radio transmission at this point. That SOS call is sent out. That was at about, uh, I think it was eight forty PM. So ultimately, that naval station in Talcahuano receives this. So they know that the ship is in danger. They know that there's going to need to be a rescue mission. So the station chief at Talcahuano, he orders the cruiser Centeno, which was actually undergoing maintenance at the time. He basically throws together a crew and sends out a rescue mission. It wasn't entirely clear to me from the source. It seemed to indicate that he led this personally. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it it sounds like he just threw together a crew and went out himself on this vessel uh, to look for this ship. Right. So literally, he's like, we got to go, like, get on the boat. We're we're going. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. So right then, that's the only ship that goes out to look for Angamos. So one crew, one ship. Uh, But then the following morning, after sunrise, the following morning, remember, this this wreck happens basically at 9 p.m. The following morning... Several more ships join the search. Some merchant vessels join the search. The tugboat Yelcho 
which is actually, that's the actual ship that rescued uh, Shackleton's crew from Elephant Island. Right. Uh, so a lot of, of tiebacks into that story. So these ships go out to, to look for Angamos, because they know that she was in trouble. The search efforts are focused near Santa Maria Island, which is where they believe the distress signal had come from. In fact, this is about 20 miles north of where the ship oh. actually sank. Uh, so this is pretty indicative of the struggles they were having in, in identifying the location in order to possibly rescue anyone. Once mm-hmm. this rescue mission does actually go out the following morning, even then they're searching in the completely wrong spot. Right. Uh, so effectively they're not helping. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that, that's kind of the start of the rescue mission. We'll get into the results of that rescue mission in a few minutes here. There are some interesting accounts from people who did survive the wreckage. Mm-hmm. So one of them was the cabin boy, Jose Aguila Carrasco. Uh, he says, quote, The ship was navigating in total darkness. Around 8.30, it ran against two rocks. The panic of the passengers, made up largely of women and children, who were traveling to Valparaiso, was indescribable. The drama became terrifying in a few moments when a giant wave tore off the bridge and carried off the officers and soldiers who were there while the ship split in two. Well, one thing I think about with this, it's always interesting when we've done a lot of passenger ships lately, mm-hmm. is how different the descriptions are. Like when we read, read this transcripts of the Alfaro, like it's all business for the most part. Like everyone's just like, hey, we got to do this. We got to do this. Mm-hmm. But in these passenger vessels, there's, like, that added element of, like, you have a bunch of people that have no idea what's going on, and, like, you're kind of responsible for them, and, like, they're scared. Right. You know, there wasn't, like, any fear, really, on the Alfaro, mm-hmm. or, you know, a lot of the, the merchant vessels that we talk about. For sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a big like difference. Added, yeah, there's, like, an added human element to having a bunch of, like, civilian-type people on board the vessel. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, Aguila, the, the account that I just read. He and three other companions were actually saved by falling into the water, grabbing onto a plank of wood. And then, you know, we talked earlier about all of the lifeboats basically being thrown against the rocks. They actually, according to their account, a big, big wave picks them up and basically throws them over those big rocks and just deposits them on the beach. It's a pretty crazy scene to think about. Yeah, that really is. Um, We always talk about cinematic moments on this show, and that's definitely one of them. It's sort of like in the Lady Elgin story, like how people are just grabbing onto whatever they can, and like it's kind of random. Some people survive, some people don't. Mm-hmm. And you have these stories like this where this guy can't even probably really describe what happened. He just knows that somehow he got over the rocks and onto the beach. Mm-hmm. And again, like on Instagram, we can make a post sharing a little bit of, of this portion of the Chilean coast. You look at some mm-hmm. of these beaches and coastlines, there's not a lot of safe places to land. Right. Uh, so right. very, very uh, lucky in that regard. So Aguila loses consciousness. When he comes to, a few hours later, he says he could see that the lights of Angamos were, were still visible, but fading. As I kind of mentioned here, by, by the time any rescue ships arrived on the actual scene, Angamos was long gone. It had already sunk entirely. So at this point, the rescue becomes just a body retrieval mission. One survivor was pulled from the water. The ship's warden, Oscar mm-hmm. Abendano. From him, we actually learn an interesting aspect of the shipwreck, uh, and that is the fate of Captain Suarez. Um, so this is a quote from Avendaño, taken from Revista de Marina, which is a it's a Chilean magazine, basically, about uh, the Chilean Navy. So Commander Suarez, on seeing the impossibility of saving his ship, locked himself in his cabin where he killed himself. 
This satisfied the old sailing tradition that the captain cannot survive when he loses his ship, and the wreck is attributable to a failure in his judgment, especially when it has caused many deaths. Hmm. And then another related passage here. This is from the newspaper Diario Jiangkiwe. Uh, this is from an article from 2004 about the wreck. At one moment during that tragic night, there was heard the report of a firearm, and all of those who were in the process of saving themselves thought that the proud captain, Don Ismael Suarez, had killed himself upon being unable to save his ship. Fernando Vega, the lieutenant, was heard saying that this was the case. He would stay on the ship and die as a sailor and as a Chilean. By daybreak, with its relative clarity, the area was desolated. Bodies of soldiers and civilians, men, women, children, pieces of the ship. That's a pretty descriptive scene, and it, I don't know, it, this sounds like horrible to even have to deal with that. Like, it just, it, kind of an unavoidable tragic situation when it got to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point, it's just an, an ocean full of all, all of this stuff, you know, bodies and, and pieces, of, pieces of the ship and everything. And again, at, at no point in the rescue was there really any chance of saving any of these people because of where it was being conducted. Is there any thought that even if they had arrived on scene, though, like would it have made a difference with the ocean being what it was and the seas and the weather? Yeah. for I'm for, assuming you could have saved some people on the water, potentially. From what I could piece together, it really seems like that, that station chief who sort of led that rescue mission. Mm-hmm. It seems like the reason he only went out himself and didn't order those other ships out was for safety reasons. I think it was mm-hmm. still far too unsafe to send out more people and, and risk more lives. So to me, it seems like had they gone to the exact right position when they had received that SOS call, they were close enough that they could have rescued some people. But I think the conditions being what they were, that's, I mean, that's kind of idealistic thinking. That that right, would... rather than having another ship end up in a similar position. Exactly. I mean, he could have, you know, they could have sent out everyone and lost two more ships in the same way. So all in all, seven people survived the sinking of Angamos. 83 bodies recovered from the sea, and 179 were never found, leaving the official death toll at 262. Mm. Uh, that's the officially listed death toll. Although, did I mix up my notes here? That's the officially listed death toll. I may have also listed that as the, the number of passengers at the beginning. That is, in fact, the death toll. Okay. So of the various items from the wreck that come up on shore... Uh, One of them was a ship's binnacle containing the ship's log. Uh, So some of the interesting excerpts from that. Uh, So July 6th, all quiet on watch, all quiet in general. Good vigilance for the surroundings, but it's impossible to see any light. Uh, Wind blowing to the northwest. Cooling off at force 5 to 6 and starting to rain harder. Uh, Then at 8 o'clock, we have an entry. Nothing in sight, all quiet. On the watch of Umberto Romo, signed Alberto Perez Canto. And then, if you remember, the ship runs into problems a little bit after this entry, mm-hmm. a little bit after 8 p.m. Uh, the final entry is made at 8.10. Nothing in sight and all quiet. That is like, uh, that's like the last words in a movie of like a ship's log right before it disappears. Exactly. You know, this, this would have been only about 20 minutes, possibly even less, before the ship loses steering and is entirely helpless. So whatever happened, happened very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the one thing that the sources agree on, regardless of what actually happened to the 
steering capabilities, regardless of how that actually went down, very, very little time passed between that and them being stranded on the rocks, basically. Yeah, to me, that would kind of indicate like a mechanical failure of some sort. Whereas like if it had been like a shoaling incident or something, like people would have noted that like someone would have been like, we hit a reef or something, Mm -hmm. you know, we we were stuck for a second and slid off and things were bad. But Mm -hmm. if it was something random and mechanical, it would have just something would have snapped and boom, there you go. You're in a bad situation. Exactly. So there is a few interesting stories surrounding this. I'll just, I'll just mention one of them that was listed in one Mm -hmm. of these news articles. I I think that shipwrecks and things like plane crashes also, they kind of lend themselves to those stories where it's like, I was going to get on that flight, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. I had a, I had a bad feeling and I decided to, to take the next one. Yeah. You always hear those stories, even like uh, the nine 11 stories where someone missed a flight mm-hmm. and like they would have been on one of the planes that was involved that day or people that like were going to, were supposed to be on the Titanic and f- for whatever reason, missed the vessel. Like when it departed, like they are always interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have this one here. Uh, so the customs agent in Punta Arenas, so the place where we talked about at the beginning, the very, very far south, he needed to travel north. I believe it was for a, some sort of legal appearance. He was traveling north to Talcahuano and then on to Valparaiso. However, when the ship stops in Puerto Montt, he decides to continue via train, kind of just changing up his, uh, his itinerary. Uh, like we talked about, kind of fast and loose with the schedules on some of these things, um, you know, whether people are traveling by ship or by train. Uh, so in an interview 40 years later, he remembered that, you know, he he didn't even know why he had decided to do this. He just kind of decided that, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to go by ship anymore. I'll take a train. And he even mentions that, you know, I had a great time on the ship. It was a good atmosphere, very festive. But something about the last night on the ship before it docks in Puerto Montt just gave him a, just kind of a sketchy feeling. So he decides he just wanted off basically just decides to get off. He takes the train North and then later the next day he reads the news that this ship he was supposed to be on has sunk. That would be such a weird experience to, to know that you kind of had like that impulse to get off mm-hmm. and then, then you read that that happened. That would be, mm-hmm. that would be strange. There's two other similar stories that I, I found. One of them involves a crew member who had been on the Angamos' crew. Uh, he had taken the ship north of Puerto Montt, but he actually got off because he had been reassigned to a new ship. So he was waiting there mm-hmm. for that ship to arrive. Uh, and then the lady, Ernestina Bustos de Steman, she was a professor from Punta Arenas. She was traveling to Concepcion, but she also made a similar decision. She just decided, eh, I want to take the train, I think, instead. Hmm. So lucky decisions there. Yeah, for sure. All right. So in terms of what happens next, what happens after this? So obviously this is a national tragedy in Chile. This is a, an international tragedy. Uh, it's reported in, in newspapers around the world. You can see old you know, American newspaper headlines. 300 dead in Chilean army transport wreck. Obviously numbers inflated. But um, but yeah, you see this. It, this is a big deal. This, this makes the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so on... August 22nd of the same year. So this is about yeah, a little bit over a month, I guess, but after it happened. Uh, the British cruiser HMS Colombo, uh, as it's passing, uh, it stops at the, the side of the wreckage. Full crew assembles on deck. The captain and two other sailors throw a wreath into the sea. And the band on board the cruiser plays a, you know, a full funeral march 
uh, for all of these mm-hmm. people who were lost in the wreck. Uh, and then also the the family of that second in command, Alberto Perez Canto Rodriguez. There was a primary school dedicated uh, in his honor. And this wreck remains the second deadliest maritime disaster in the history of Chile. I honestly don't know the uh, deadliest, but this one sounds awful. So I can't imagine how bad that one must be. I know that it came up in my research, but I am just blanking on the name. That's a Breakers episode for another time. For the maybe. Future. <laughs> so this brings us to our kind of our concluding segment here. And uh-huh. that's all about why did Angamo sink? And also why were rescue attempts so unsuccessful? So first of all, of course, we talked about the loss of steering during heavy weather. Lack of visibility could have been a contributing factor to this. Right. So the lighthouse situation is obviously something that's relevant to this. I had to do a, a bit of a bit of a deep dive research on see like what what the layout of this was on the coast of Chile. There is a light and that there was a light at this time at Punta Morguilla. However, it's almost exactly that and nothing else. This is not this a this, literally a light. This is not a full service lighthouse. This is essentially just a large lantern on I believe a 13 foot pole. So Okay, so yeah, it's just like a lamp post basically. So possibly helpful at times, but in super super heavy weather when it's this dark, you know, one of the things that everyone keeps mentioning is that it's it's totally dark. They can't see anything. They have no idea where they are. No idea how close they are to the coast. Uh, so that's that's a possibility. That could be a contributing factor. Uh, obviously mentioned very, very rocky area. The sea itself and the shore are very, very rocky. Uh, and again, these, these bad conditions didn't allow for proper transmission of that SOS signal. Uh, so it was able to be relayed, but not effectively to the point that they could be located, which ultimately is the point of right. the SOS signal. And I think... Like if this is like a thing where I think you can see the value in modern day safety and like the advances that we've had where you've got a GPS beacon that deploys in an emergency and it tells people like, you know, you're here. Mm-hmm. And now we even have the individual beacons on the life suits, kind of like what we talked about in the Katmai episode mm-hmm. where, you know, they only had one on the position where the vessel sank. And if they'd had individual ones on the suits, it would have been, you know, easier to save people. But with this, like, you don't even know where this, you just know that somewhere out there a ship is in distress and, like, you don't even really know where it's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially. Exactly. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere in this, like, roughly 50-mile stretch of coast, there is there is a ship that needs help. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That... So, so in addition to that, so the, the search mission not being able to be conducted in the correct spot, the storm itself, as I mentioned, likely prevented more of those ships from being dispatched to, to engage in the rescue. You know, these ships weren't launched until the following morning. And this is, we're talking seven or eight hours after there's really any hope of rescuing people. Right. And again, that's that's never explicitly listed as why those ships were held back. It makes sense to me that they would do that so as not to endanger more personnel. Mm-hmm. So that's that. I mean, that's that's sort of the rundown of why the shipwreck happened. So I guess I'll, I'll jump into my final comments here. So this was a, this was an interesting and challenging episode to research. It it took me quite a while and there's multiple reasons for that. So a lot of the sources about this that you can find online are themselves just sort of amalgamations of other sources that aren't really available anymore. Some of those sources don't always line up in their stories. 
Uh, so there's conflicting contemporary sources. Sometimes the numbers are inflated. The makeup of who was on this ship is conflicting. Sometimes you've got incorrect names of ships and people involved, uh, especially in some of those contemporary headlines. They'll have the wrong ship, or they'll, they'll have the captain's name wrong. Various spellings of the same ships. Uh, you'll, you'll think that maybe, is, are, these, are these supposed to be two different ships, but then you realize that the sources are just spelling their names differently? Yeah, that would be definitely hard to track across multiple sources. I can see that being an issue. And again, all of these sources further compounded by the fact that I had to do all of this in translation. All of the, all of the useful sources on this are in Spanish which is fine for reading, but it was also an extra challenge of having to take that and not only translate it, but put it into sort of a podcast format that's you know us- right. usable. You should also also mention that by translate, you don't mean just hit the Google translate button. Like you're right. Try, like, trying you to, would say functionally, you're functionally fluent in Spanish. Try, would say. Trying to render a, an accurate and engaging translation uh, right. of these sources while also not losing any information in the process. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was a fun challenge to, to do for, uh, sure. for this one. Other things like, you know, normally on this show, as much as possible, we like to talk about technical things when we can, uh, when it's sort of within our wheelhouse. The lack of information about why, you know, what actually happened to the ship. All we know is that it lost steering. We don't really have any clues as to why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the other interesting thing for me from a narrative perspective is just the fact that you have plenty of ships and plenty of personnel readily available to engage in this rescue mission, but you simply don't have the ability either to get to the area or even to locate where this area is that you're supposed to be looking. So it just kind of, it adds to this whole sort of tragic mess of the Angamos. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that we did this one. I know you had, you found it and kind of brought it to my attention and everything and said you wanted to do this one. It's not a shipwreck I had ever heard of or had any awareness about, but it's pretty amazing that we just keep finding these kind of stories where there's, you know, hundreds of people that are lost in a tragic accident like this. And there's basically zero visibility, especially in the English speaking world for this wreck. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like I think there is a Wikipedia page and I think it is maybe four sentences long. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's kind of cool that we can shed a little light on this stuff. And like you said, like you literally had to translate basically all the sources for this one into English. So that's a fun thing to do to, to bring a little attention to, the, to this and, and raise that awareness a little bit for something that it's a truly tragic accident. You don't often see accidents on this scale anymore, you know, it, you know, in modern, modern times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so cer- like if this happened today, this would be like a breaking news thing on CNN or something. And certainly not like, you know, with this, the, you know, the nature of all of this uh, military personnel traveling with their families Mm-hmm. That too, you know, and I think contributes obviously to the the tragedy of it. Um, and yeah, those those sources that I use, we'll we'll link to those on Buzzsprout. Mm-hmm. Um, so those will be available for everyone if you want to check those out. I think that's everything I've got here. Yeah, um, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add either. I know I it was a little bit harder for me to kind of dig in and, and do any sort of secondary research on this one since we were so limited on our sources. But um, like I said, I'm really excited that we can even provide this story for people to uh to check out so uh yeah i think that'll pretty much do it we will be back next week for sure we'll for the foreseeable future be putting these things out once a week again appreciate everybody's patience with last week while we both kind of had stuff going on and uh with that being said 
I hope everybody has a great weekend or sorry, great week. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.